Hey everyone, welcome to the Unconventional Podcast, where we are going to get right under the skin of the modern day workplace, and more importantly, how the ever-evolving neurodiverse world fits into it. Cue the dramatic music. On this rainy Thursday morning, um, actually, Rory, can you hear the rain? Uh, we have a bit of rain here, so I can hear my rain. I can't hear your rain. Oh, that's all right then, because this microphone <laughs> literally picks up everything. Um, I think I could probably have a poo 40 yards away at the front of the house and this microphone would pick it up. So, uh, But anyway, um, on this rainy Thursday morning, um, I am joined by a very good friend of mine who I actually met through the, the, the pages of LinkedIn. Um, uh, someone that, uh, like I said, I... I, I do now consider a, a, a true friend and, a, and an absolute gentleman, uh, Mr. Rory Berry. Um, I might actually add some some clapping and cheering over that as a, as a sound effect. Um, but rather than me go into uh, what Rory does and, and sell the dream of Rory, I'm going to let him do that. So I'm going to kind of pass you over to Rory. Rory, the, the floor is yours to tell us what you do and, and where you've kind of where it's all come from. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Um, as the the good officer, Mr. Andy said, my name is Rory. I run a business called Roaring Berry. I'm a staff retention specialist. Now, what on earth does that mean? I can hear you asking. Well, quite simply, it's this. I spend time working with businesses to look after their most important thing. They're human beings. Because if you can look after the humans properly, you look after your business. Because if they're happy and engaged and staying, your business is productive and profitable and therefore sustainable to the best of all of the things that we can control in terms of that mad world of variables that we have to try and control. How did I get here? I just got a bit frustrated along the way in my own journey watching far too many businesses not care enough about the humans and just see them as tick boxes instead of beings that need to be looked after cool um I, I the reason i've i've invited rory on apart from the fact that i knew he'd be a fantastic guest is because i think actually staff retention and neurodiversity in the workplace link very very well um and um there's a there's a story that uh, i i was thinking about before we jumped on the call today there was a story that was running through my head and i've told this story a few times to people to younger generations that perhaps are used to some organizations being a little bit more caring. Um, the reason that Rory exists is because there's still millions that perhaps aren't uh, and, and, and don't quite get it. But when I was a, a young 16 year old whippersnapper in, uh, in retail, working for Comet, many of you will, will remember Comet back in the day before it went down. Um, so we're going back 26 years. Uh, yeah, I know, I'm really old. Um, and um, I, uh, my mum was very much the, you're never late to anything. You you cannot be late. She's And she's still the same now. She always gets everywhere early. She leaves herself plenty of time. And that was really drilled into me. And at 16, she used to bring me up a cup of tea into my room just so that I got out of bed on time so that she could get me to work on time so that there was no knock on or repercussions. But we used to pick a mate up and we rocked up at his house about 10 past eight. And um, we were supposed to be at work in the staff room for the briefing at half eight. 
and uh, we got there at 10 past eight. It was only a 10 minute drive from his house. Well, he didn't quite have the same um, mindset around being early for things. And we sat there for 10 minutes, tapping our feet, looking at our watches. Oh, my God, we're going to be late. We're going to be late. And it just didn't compute with us being late. And he rocks out at 20 past eight, barnet all over the place, tie knot on, shirt untucked. And I thought, oh, God, he's got up late. And his mum clearly didn't care. So um, he gets in the car and we rock up at 8.32, into the staff room, 8.32. Room full of people, maybe 20, 30 people. And the sales manager back then was like, he was an ex-army, tattoos everywhere, skinhead. God knows how he got a job in retail as a sales manager. I'll, I'll never know. But he did. And he was standing at the front of the, of the group. And he looked at me at 8.32 and went, you two, you're late again. You're getting a bollocking. And then carried on his conversation. And at the time, I thought to myself, what, that wasn't a bollocking? Does it get any worse than that? Like, what was worse than that? But can you actually imagine, Rory, if someone walked into an office in 2022, two minutes late, a 20, 30, 40-man office, and the manager said that now? I don't want, I don't want to have to say this, but unfortunately, it still happens. That's insane. And that's when those proverbial last straws and camel's backs happen. It's not that some, somebody doesn't leave because somebody called them out for being two minutes late. Somebody leaves because that's the final straw in their disengagement journey because they were undermined, verbally abused, misunderstood, not looked after, not listened to, not supported, not encouraged, not invested in. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And so you slowly but surely disengage and you start to feel miserable about everything. And then one day you've done everything possible to be on time and it's two minutes. Yes, it could have been two minutes before, but it happens to be two minutes after. And instead of opening with, is everything okay? Because if everything's okay, yeah, I just sort of thought I could stop at Costa for an extra 15 minutes. Fair play, bollock away. But if you've got no context, you don't open the batting with bollocking, bollocking, bollocking. No. But why, so why, I guess in 1996, that the word neurodiversity was just not in people's, <coughs> people's vocabulary, was it? Um, so, but what, why was it acceptable then to, to do that? And, and what do you think over the last 26 years has, changed in the way that people because at, at 16 I didn't know any different yeah like and he wasn't the only one for the next three four five years through my sales career before I became a manager I worked with tons of people that were like that that were that brutal that literally if you didn't fit their exact agenda you were a chump that was going to be on the on the shit list what when what at what point did people start saying I'm not going to accept that anymore because I accepted it. It was just normal for me. I think that there's a two phase answer to this. Number one, we say it was acceptable in inverted commas back then, but it really wasn't. It was just the norm. Now, the biggest benefit that we've had in able to move forward 26 years and look backwards is 
thankfully, more and more people are realizing that that's not the right way to behave. Mm. And so they are making the choice to make a different choice on a day-to-day basis. I think that as we have grown up as a society in one way, we've realized that treating people like rubbish is rubbish. And it's not a good way to inspire, motivate, encourage. And I think that for a long time, all management training was use the stick. Like carrots, carrots don't even exist in the building, let alone as part of our strategy of dealing with humans. It was just beat them into submission Mm. because it was all very dictatorial and driven by fear-based stress sorry it's a train going past annoyingly well at least my rain stopped so the rain's um, been replaced with a train yeah rain and rain and train falls mainly in spain we'll just roll with it um but i think that now what we've got is people have realized that carrots exist and shock and horror positive psychology and positive reinforcement of the right behaviors or the behaviors that we want to see has become something that people have realized is less effort, Mm. less painful, gets you a more engaged team faster because people aren't terrified. Did you know that the unconventional brand has three arms? The podcast you're listening to right now, Unconventional Apparel, where a percentage of the profits go to the National Autistic Society, and most recently, Think Unconventional, a social media company with busy business owners and CEOs in mind, putting your social media presence on the social media map. I think um, for me that, and this is where it links very well with with neurodiversity, which those of those of you that know me and that follow my LinkedIn content will know that it's something very close to my heart because of our son Jake and the, and the journey we've been on there. But one of the reasons that we started the business or now business is um, was because of my fear around him and and him going into the working world and him not being understood. Um, because of the way he approaches situations. Do you think that within obviously the work that you do and perhaps others um, that that kind of do a similar thing, although obviously no one does it to the level that you do it, that goes without saying. um, (laughs) Do you think there needs to be more awareness of that in terms of that initial training for managers and and understanding the different personalities and, and characteristics? I... 100% believe that if we spend more time teaching managers to be more human and less robot, a lot of this other stuff would become as I, what I like to call as obvious as breathing. Mm. It becomes second nature to just inquire about someone's state. It becomes second nature to not assume that everyone is exactly like you becomes second nature to celebrate that if there are, 10 Rory's in a team, yes, there might be some stuff that goes really well, but I can tell you for a fact that there are some things that would also go really badly because there are Mm. things that Rory doesn't do well. And so I would need to have people around me that are, shock and horror, different, Mm. which includes neurodiversity 
in yeah. the bigger mix because yeah. everyone has a superpower is the way I like to call it. And I didn't make a book title. Um, and so I think that when we can enhance everyone's awesomeness and use everyone's awesomeness to offset people's not awesomeness, you get this magic thing in your workforce, in your workplace, which is just beautiful, nuanced support and all that stuff. And yeah, absolutely. From your neurodiversity perspective, that fits into that 2000%. Mm. I think you, you picked up on something there that I always say to Jake, and that is that neurodiversity is a superpower. Um, well, you actually said everyone's got a superpower, which is 100% true. But I think that the perception of neurodiversity when you're out of that world um, and you haven't embraced it or you haven't been educated around it is that it's a disability and something that almost needs to be shied away from. Yeah. Um, you know, I've interviewed people because of my time with Jake. I've interviewed people within roles and I can pick up on it instantly, even if they haven't had a formal diagnosis, which as I've mentioned millions of times now on social media, 90% of the people that need the support or that need a different approach in terms of the way they're communicated with yeah. won't ever get a diagnosis. They won't have a label and it, yeah. and therefore will be treated by the, probably the ignorant, just like everyone else, because no one's gone. Yeah, but I'm, I'm autistic. Oh, okay. That makes sense now with your actions. It shouldn't take that. To, for someone to say oh okay that makes sense now yeah um but i think there is a a naivety and almost a fear around that in the workplace that if someone comes in and they're neurodiverse or or they openly display characteristics of that that there's an instant fear factor of i, I really don't know how to to manage this so i'm going to default yeah um and i think that's also where to some extent there is a what's the word i'm looking for a perception that just because someone possibly and like you say isn't necessarily definitely diagnosed but could have some neurodiversity in them you can't manage them mm. and it becomes a fear of the manager slash leader person and they go i don't think i can do this and then regretfully what often happens is the they then don't ask for support to support their teams. And so they then move into a fear-based, defensive-based way of approaching everything that they do, which then becomes a negative space for anyone in their team, neurodiverse or neurotypical. And that cycle has just begun, which is going to lead to your disengagement and ultimately people leaving mm. because one person who might with the best of intentions want to have helped, but is afraid of asking for help to be able to help. Yeah. Do you know what that leads into um, nicely to a, a story about, I spoke to a, a wonderful woman yesterday um, called Rachel Glasspool. And she is, she's been working with children for around 15 to 20 years, but she yeah. hasn't got children herself, but she kind of went into it some time ago and realized, you know what, this is what I'm meant to do. Um, and she's actually just launched a new business, which is a piece of software 
that goes into schools that schools can pay a, a yearly subscription to to sign up to yeah. and it allows the pupils online uh, on this this digital format if you like on this piece of software to express how they're feeling and at primary school level it's very um icon based because yeah. it's it's obviously sometimes and again this comes back to not everyone expresses themselves in the same way. There's so many different ways that people express themselves. And the reason I bought into this um, idea when I was speaking to Rachel was because we forget, we think we're approachable as managers and, and leaders. I always thought I was approachable. Yeah. And in general, I think most people felt like they could talk to me. But there's always a percentage of your team that don't want to talk to you, that that's just not their way. And yep. inside, they're crying out for an outlet that's more than just a yearly bullshit survey that no one actually ever does anything with. Yep. That they can use to express their feelings for that day or that week that then feeds into a dashboard. And in this case, obviously, in education, it feeds through to the teacher and it takes that pressure off the teacher having to keep an eye on 30 kids a day and all of their different emotions, which is impossible. Yeah. So this piece of software that she's created or had helped to create that she's launched as this business, I think is a genius idea because my wife, she works uh, in a school, as many people listening will know. And some of the stories I get about the kids and how they're struggling with this and that and what's going on at home is affecting them. And there's and we, we underestimate how much the COVID period affected not just kids, but everyone. I said a year into COVID when people were getting excited about potentially it being all over and going back to normal and all the rest of it. I was saying to people, your normal that you think you're going back to that don't exist anymore. Oh, yeah. this is changed the game forever. And the fallout, the actual mental health fallout for children and adults is going to last for five, 10 years because yeah. Because no one will pick up on what the fallout could potentially be. And everyone's so desperate to just go back to parties and getting together and barbecues and all the rest of it that everyone just took for granted before. Yeah. That they will default back to that without actually realizing this has really messed me up, this. Yeah. Um, and I think that fallout, we're in the middle of that now, and it's going to go on for a long, long time. I think this is where, I mean, it's it's a classic phrase and, and lingo of emotional intelligence mm. has got to be encouraged, supported, nurtured in, well, let's be honest, the world. But if we start with just leaders and managers, it's a great place to begin. Mm. Um, and I think that within that, it's funny you talk about school. I, in 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 my grand journey to get to this point, I did a year of teaching. I taught drama at a junior school. Um, so the, the performing arts. And I, I mean, as you know, I'm probably in the sort of unconventional world in terms of the way I approach everything that I do. And the first problem that I had was when I was told I had to give them all a grade. And I was like, I'm not judging a junior school person on their creativity and wrecking their life by telling them they are or aren't creative. But I had to give them all a grade because them's the rules. Yeah. So I took 
the four rules that I had when we used to, well, the four, not I had, that were at summer camp in the States, because I did some work at summer camp in the States, and I made them the rules of my class, and they were really hard. They were listen, share, try your best, and do what's right. I mean, this is big stuff, as you can clearly tell. And I said to every single kid in my class, on the first day of the first term, if you do these four things in my class this term, you get an A. If you don't listen, you're not doing what's right. Therefore, you're breaking half my rules. So you're probably getting a B. And if you do it a lot, you're probably getting a C. And that was like, I made it super simple to understand. There were some people that were very talented performers that were very bad at listening and towing the line. They got Bs at the end of the first term. To the point that one parent came with a wailing child at the end of term once the reports had been handed out and tried to sort of negotiate from a B to an A. And I said, do you see the four words or rules on the wall? And they were like, yes. I'm like, those are the rules of my class. Your child doesn't listen, which means they're not doing what's right, which means they cannot get an A in my class. Unsurprisingly, that person towed the line the next term. And one of the things that struck me the most at the end of the third term, there was a young man who'd been in, our, in my class and had been novel and excitable in the beginning, but by term three, he really sort of settled in and was, he got an A, like it was his first A in pretty much any subject. And other teachers came to say, what have you done? And I was like, nothing, I was just consistent. And we were having a chat one day because a lot of the kids would come and hang out in the class at lunchtime. And because so as long as it was more than one from a safety perspective, um, then I would have lunch there and we'd just hang out and talk about life and Lego and stuff. Obviously. And <laughs> Lego consistent all the way through. Yeah, obviously Lego. Yeah, always going to get, <laughs> we've got to get a mention somehow. Um, <laughs> and this little man said to me, sir, you're the best sir we've ever had. And I said, thanks, buddy. What what is what have I done right? Like, is it because we have so much fun? Because we play? And he goes, No, you shout at the girls too. Uh, All he wanted was a fair shake at yep. consistency. And because I because I I set the boundary super simply. Like, yeah. this is what you do, and you don't get shouted at. If you don't do these things, then we have raised voice Rory and nobody wants that including Rory and so by just doing that simple thing I broke through so many of the barriers that people had put in place for bad children or naughty children because I treated them all exactly the same because they all had the exact same standards to survive or fail by inverted mm. commas mm. and it I mean by the end of the year or that I was there a couple of the kids that were in my class for drama had got A's and B's in other classes because of the way that they'd grown as humans in the, the performing arts class with me and that was like it was a happy heart moment of note when I when I got to leave even though there was tears of note because I was leaving and I'd had a great time and there was much fun and joy that we all had mm. but it just reminded me about how leadership is really simple mm. when we get it right. Like we are so good at overcomplicating it and it doesn't need to be. And I think that kind of leads me on to, I've got, I want to kind of talk about shift gears slightly and talk about 
the business and the bigger you go in terms of the corporate big businesses and their strategy and what it's centered around but before that i think something to finish that story is the consistency is what i think lets it down because you went in and, and you took that approach and everyone said to you you were the best sir that ever had and these were the reasons and you felt very proud of what you'd achieved there um the the danger is that then someone follows up with those children in terms of their next level of their education or whatever journey they go on yeah and they don't have that same outlook yeah and it defaults and obviously when you're a child you're very easily led by the different stages that you go through so yes you did a fantastic job for that period but then if if person x then comes in for the next period and completely blows that out the water and changes their their view on things then they almost then become submerged in that way of thinking and then it changes again and it changes again because of the lack of consistency yeah i think if we if we talk about business for a second and and not just the corporates but even down to a small level and i've seen it myself where i've worked for small companies and then larger companies everything is centered so you you have a strategy and strategy is the biggest misunderstood thing in the history of business i think in in my experience in terms of how it's built out and in and from what i see it's always centered around money Yes. So, yes, you can you, you can have financial aspirations. Yes, you have the BHAG of we want to make this fine. No problem. But in either of my businesses, I have never said, right, by this point, I want to be making this much money yeah. because. There's so many other elements that make up that figure. That if all you do is focus on that top level and then you filter that message down to your team, Right. The strategy is we want to make 10 million pounds by, by year three. OK, that's not a strategy. Yeah, that's a goal that you have in your head. Fine, because you want to take massive dividends out of the company and you want to be seen as this big all conquering. Yeah. But actually how you get there is so much more important to everyone else in this room. Yeah. So maybe if you start centering strategy around people, and how to get more from the different personalities in your group, you might actually make 20 million by yeah. year three. Well, as you said, I want to make X by Y is not a strategy. That's no. a goal. A strategy is I want to do the best X thing that we do as a business to look after the most type of companies and that becomes then it becomes more mission vision focused and values based so that people then also to use the phrase drink the kool-aid and get on board because if everyone so let's just say you're now starting to hire into um mm. unconventional because let's be honest the empire will grow and you will have to and so when you when you're obvs when you're hiring into the empire you want people that buy into the brand, the values, the vision, the strategy, not we're going to sell 45 hoodies a week. Rah! Like that's, that's not the, that's not the strategy. That's not the vision. That's somebody's own personal sales goal, which, you know, if they do thumbs up, yay, that's big win and big giving to charity and all the good stuff, but you're not going to hire someone with the proviso of, 
well, you have to sell 45 footies in the first week. Otherwise, you're a terrible human and I hate you and I'm going to let you go. No, you're going to bring someone in that believes in what you're doing, in what you want, and, 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 and brings their special source mm-hmm. that makes it better and elevates it each time. Because each time you bring somebody into your business, you have a beautiful opportunity to level up. That's not to say that what you're doing is rubbish, but don't we always strive to be better and mm-hmm. level up and bring more and do more and give back more? And yes, chasing a top line number is absolute rubbish. Where do you think it goes wrong? Because I think there's businesses that perhaps they, they'll listen to this and they'll say, do you know what, we're going to try that. We're going to we know that we probably talk about the financial goals too much. And there's a group of 20, 30, 40, 100,000 people that they nod along and they sit in the meetings and they say, yeah, 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 that sounds great. 100 million by X. But actually, they then leave the room and go, I honestly don't give a fuck about your numbers. I just want to be happy in what I'm doing, be driven by a mission, feel like what I'm doing is valued, feel like I'm really part of the big picture. And actually, no one does that for me right now because every conversation is about money yeah so they look at it and go okay we're going to try that and we're going to center everything around the people and we're going to look at people development and we're going to bring people in that have a real heartfelt mission of understanding individuals and then after six months the money still isn't where they originally wanted it to be because that's still in their head yeah and they default back to the stick and talking about money all the time do you how does that get stopped how do you stop that happening to be brutally honest one you might have to get rid of some people in order to move forward with your new strategy because some people will talk a great game but not be able to actually buy into a more heart-led people-centric way of approaching it number two obviously you've got to take care of the numbers like the the business can't go bang because you're trying to be all like kumbaya and happy happy for everyone like there are some practical realities that have to occur so it's not about throw what you're doing out of the baby bathwater and all that sort of stuff but what it does take is a very intentional genuine intent like intent from the leadership and it's got to start at the top. So if middle management is all in on the idea of let's invest in the people, that are there, but the person at the top is just like, could you bastards just get on with it and make me money? Mm. Don't even start. And so if the person at the top is not sure if they can, then I would say to them, and I've done this with working with businesses, let's do work with you first. Let's, let's do some exec coaching leadership development work from a, a top top person level so that they can then rampage around and i'm going to use the word infect but it's a positive infectious the whole business because if you have anyone that's sort of middle to upper management that's not on board and i mean genuinely on board not talking a good game and then trying to petrol bomb it after three months it's going to be dead in the water so don't start it's got to be genuine or it's not worth trying. And can, I guess, and, and not me not having done it to the level that you have, 
Do you think that um, an MD or a CEO of a company, regardless of size, that has always done it a certain way, can they be influenced? Can they can they change and and sustain that change? Can everyone change? I believe yes. Does everyone want to change? That's a big fat no. I guess it comes down to do they see a need? So what I mean by that is, do you think that even if a company has high staff turnover, yeah, but the bottom line still looks healthy, do you, there's probably lots of people in that business that think, well, I just, I don't really care if there's high staff turnover. As long as the money's still there, I'll kind of bury my head around what that could do for the business longer term. Yeah. I mean, just the, um, just the glass door uh, reviews on my business could actually eventually mean that no one actually wants to work here. But yeah. I think in that moment, do you think, yes, you've presented me that we've got a really high staff turnover, but you've also presented to me that we've making lots of money. I'm cool with that. The way I explain that answer when people talk to me, if I'm going to go in and start a consult with them, quite simply is this. If we reduce your staff turnover and keep everything else the same, you could add between 10 and 25% to your bottom line. Mm. And if people like money. And so you sometimes have to talk wallet to get to the hearts and minds mm. because they are linked. And I mean, and until we abolish money in the world and it all becomes sort of like high fives, handshakes, and we don't have to worry about that sort of thing anymore. We, we have to worry about money. Yeah. So it's, it's got to be part of the factor, but it's about where you weight it. And I think this is where the exec coaching thing comes back to a lot of the time we talk about identity when it comes to the coaching side of the process, because a lot of people are so attached to I'm so-and-so the, so I'm so-and-so the footballer, I'm so-and-so the footballer, I'm so-and-so the accountant, I'm so-and-so the MD, I'm so-and-so, I'm the MD of that. And their entire identity is wrapped up in the thing they do instead of them being them and the thing they do just is a thing they do and so when so-and-so the footballer stops playing football then they so-and-so the nothing because they've built their entire identity around being so-and-so the footballer or the md or the high flyer or whatever and so people when you do a lot of exec coaching which what we often will do is we will reframe it so that they can re-look at legacy because when i die no one gives a monkey's toss what my turnover was in year three of the business. They do want to know, is, was I a chop nut? Was I nice to people? Did people feel great when they were around me? Did I uplift people? That's my legacy. Not ah, top performing salesman three years in a row. Yeah, but you were a dick. <laughs> do you think people get caught up in... in for me, and I know you and I are very much on the same page here, I think about legacy all the time. Like, I didn't start Think Unconventional to be a millionaire. I started it to be able to make a difference, to be able to do things like this. You know, one day I want to be given the opportunity to speak on stage and try and help and support and influence people perhaps that are going through a similar journey or that perhaps don't know yeah. where to turn. And I want to enjoy a, a decent quality of life with my kids and, and my wife and have that time. It wasn't, it wasn't to be a millionaire. But do you think um, people get caught up in the moment of 
well, I, I really want nice things and I want to be able to afford to do this and I want to be able to go on holiday every year. So right now, it's just about money. And honestly, when I die, I don't give a toss about what people remember me for. Um, I, 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 I know a lot of people like that. I know a lot of people that are caught up in the, the here and now. They want the flash cars. They want the holidays. They want all the stuff done to their homes. Nine times out of ten, because they're trying to keep up, because we live in a keep up culture, in, 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 in not just in this country, but globally. Um, and I don't know. I think there's a, a much higher percentage of people that live life like that than that live life wanting to be remembered for something good. I think it's very often, I don't want to be ageist, but as you get as you get older in your life, you start to look at things differently. When I was 20, I was all about like, give me all the toys. Mm. Mm. Because like, I want to drive a cool car, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then life happens. And so for me, by the time I was 25, I put five friends in the ground, two from suicide, two from drunk drivers and one from cancer. And like my whole world changed. Like I realized real quick that it doesn't matter what car I drive. It doesn't matter, blah, blah, blah. Yes, we all want to be comfortable, but comfortable is actually defined by us, not what society thinks and tells us it should be. And this is where I don't want to hate on anything, but like the whole, like, look at me, I travel the world and I get paid by brands to live in hotels. That is totally unsustainable as a thing to promote and tell people to become. Mm. Because if everyone was doing that, who's doing the work? Yeah. yeah. And I think that this is part of the grand adventure that is also staff retention and looking after people and even the, the, the neurodiversity stuff to an extent. We need to stop telling everyone to start businesses. Because if everyone starts a business, then there's no people working in the other businesses that those businesses need to work on. Everybody tells everyone to become a business. Then they've got no one serving you in the pubs that you want to go and eat at when you're having your time off from your business. Mm -hmm. So like there are also some people that are perfectly content and more than happy to be a worker because they find their happiness, their hard stuff outside of that in the relationships in the peopleness in that legacy stuff yeah and so that's where we need to start to also think and look and understand how we view the world that's um that's a really good point actually because you've kind of just talked about there that we can't keep telling everyone to be a, an entrepreneur and i think that is so true there, there's a stat that I looked at a few years back and it said one in three self-made millionaires are on the ASD spectrum. Yeah. Um, and I think that links very nicely into what we've been talking about through this whole 40 odd minutes is that they're almost forced to go that way because they've tried the work angle. Yeah. They were misunderstood completely. And they're like, literally, if I want to do something, I'm going to have to do it alone. Now, I know there's other elements to it. Hyper-focused super obsessive um you know i did uh, a test a while ago an online test after Linz and i had been discussing things for autism and adhd and obviously because it's in the family it's not just our side it's also Lindsay's side as well and i scored highly on on both um but i scored extremely highly on adhd um and 
it's maybe no coincidence that I've been longing to do this probably for 10 years and then only had the the balls to actually jump and, and do it now. But at the same time, I do wonder if some of that was a an output of never finding somewhere that actually nurtured and perhaps got the best out of what I could do. Yeah. I think that there are many businesses that could absolutely go stratospheric if they invested in their people. And I mean the ones that they have, but also bringing in the right people. And I think that neurodiverse can be absolute rock stars in the right role with the right, in the right company with the right support. Much like neurotypical can be rock stars in the right role in the right company with the right support. And the key of those three things is support because you could actually be the wrong person in the right company with the right support and still do really, really well. And so for me, the way we look after our people comes back to the support word. And that starts with leaders of businesses need to get support. So if that's external coaching or a support group of peers, have someone to bloody talk to. It's lonely if you don't. The managers in businesses need the support of the people above them, but also their own peer level. And very often it helps to have them external. Now, there is, I have nothing against HR. They do amazing work. They do really good stuff. But a lot of people, for whatever psychological reason, fear talking to HR because they're worried that it will make them appear weak and or not capable. And so they might get let go. So they don't talk to people. If there's an external person, so I do my coach on call service and I know other, other people that can do the same thing. I'm, not, I'm paid, but I'm not on HR. And what that means is, I don't care if you have an issue with the fact that Steve brings in tuna every lunch and it's stinky in the canteen. Like, that's not my bag. My bag is to help you navigate that in a way that makes you productive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If I'm HR, and I know this information, and the next time Steve comes in to talk to me, I'm potentially on a subconscious level trying to think about a way to mention the fact that maybe two days a week for tuna would be better than five. And I know it's a small example, but these are the things, these are the silly little things that cause people to disengage, which ultimately leads to them leaving. These are the straws that these are the tuna straws that break camel's backs. <laughs> and, and you know what? You've kind of made me think of something there, the disengagement. If you've got a team, I know this for a fact, if you've got a team of 40, 50 people or, or, and upwards, you can kind of do this at scale. You can have a third, maybe even half of that team disengaged with the company vision, probably only working at 50, 60%. Yep. But because the engaged ones are working at 120%, it covers that up and you can still be profitable. You can still yep. be doing really well. You can still look like you're great from a top level. You can look down and go, do you know what? The company's great. But there's so many people going under the radar, hiding what they're actually feeling, hiding the fact that they're not being super productive because no one's actually looking at it really granularly. Yep. And it's kind of like, imagine if that half we're all working. You're never going to get everyone working at 120%. That's not real life. Yeah. You're always going to get plodders. But even if the plodders went from 70% to 
or 50% to 80%. Yeah. And you manage them. Imagine how much more profitable. And as you said, it has to come back to money with some people. We live in the real world. Imagine how much more profitable those businesses would be if that third or half of their company up their game by 10 or 20% just because they felt valued and actually like someone gave a shit about them as individuals. Yep. I mean, there's a great quote. I think it was Sean Dash, the ex-Burnley manager, who said, we'll take care of the minimums and the maximums will take care of themselves. Because you've always got your sort of max and your min and they are X distance apart. It's really hard to keep pushing the top up. Mm. But if you can bring the bottom closer to the top, you automatically improve. Mm. And exactly the same thing. Don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean you stop engaging with your engaged people. You keep that going, but you don't double down on reinvesting into the 120% people because then you get them to 150% and then you burn them out and then you bug it. What you do is you keep them at their 100 to 120%, keep them happy, keep them doing what they're doing. Then like you say, you bring your 60s, your 70s up to your 80s, your 90s, your bottom line just improved and you didn't do much more selling. You just became more efficient. Yeah. But as we keep saying, that is about understanding people, taking the time to not treat everyone the same. Yep. Um, having those individual conversations, giving those people an outlet. And that's why the conversation with Rachel was so good, because not she started this in schools, but she's already having conversations with people about putting it into businesses at a more adult level. Because no matter how approachable you think you are, Yes. That is just your opinion of you. Yes. They see you in a very different light. So they may want to communicate with you in a different way. Yes. But if you as a business aren't giving them that outlet to communicate in that way, you're never going to understand them, how they feel, how they want to be uh, engaged with, and ultimately their true value. Yes. But also, because there is the word manager or leader or team leader or insert title here in your title automatically there is a fear factor now mm. not because you're a meanie that's because of historic understandings of hierarchical structures ultimately we all fart and burp the same we're all humans but like unfortunately you put a name like that in someone's title and things change this is where that ability to cut through as a leader slash manager and listen with intent and make yourself accessible, but also give them permission to fail. I'm not talking catastrophic failure. We like go to your biggest client and tell them to do one. No, mm. that is not what I'm saying, but let them try stuff. Because if you are afraid of like, oh, I don't even know if I can change the signature on my email, for heaven's sake, it's an email. I mean, unless you're saying go do one, your dickheads, it's perfectly fine to change it from kind regards to have a great day. Mm. Some people won't even make that small change because they're so petrified of failing and getting in trouble and, and, and. That is where support, that big support word coming back from managers helps people to fail forward, learn, grow, develop those trust relationships. Because if I've cocked something up, and I'm too terrified to come and tell you, I'm gonna hide it and that's gonna make it worse. If I've screwed something up and I'm happy to come to talk to you, knowing, look, I might get a bollocking because I've screwed it up, but it's something I deserve to be bollocked for. 
but I also know you're not going to just sort of rip my arm off and beat me with the wet end. <laughs> you're going to like walk me through what happened. You're going to support me through learning from this process. If there has to be disciplinary because of the way the system works fine, but it's a respectful humility led heart centric conversation. It doesn't matter if you're neurodiverse or neurotypical, that's a great way to support people. It is. Rory, I think that is, uh, that's a perfect way to kind of round up our rant. I mean, um, our podcast recording. Um, uh, for those of you that don't know, this is actually only the second recording uh, I've done. The first one is finished, but it's not live yet. I wanted a few under our belt. And, and this has been a fantastic way to start the uh, the guest podcasts and it's given me millions of ideas for the next however many episodes so um thank you very much rory for those of you listening if you don't follow rory berry on all of the socials you absolutely should be um, he's an absolute legend and i hope you've got extreme value from today's podcast i know i certainly have um and uh, i will see you again very shortly thanks for listening guys thank you for having me